fastest transition ever. Emily was still playing her last note, and, and uh, everybody was already seated. Like, we know what's happening here. It's uh, good. Second Samuel chapter 13. We want to get started today. Good morning, good morning. It's good to see all of you. You're looking good. Very summery. I see that our spring fast helped you all get ready for summer. Anyways, let's move on. Second Samuel chapter 12. <laughs> all right. Let me have it. Let me stand this prayer together. Let me go and pray. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we thank you for for, for you, for what you're doing uh, in our lives, in our church, and um, in our hearts and our minds. We love you. We honor you. We're so grateful for you, God. We're so grateful for you, God. We're so grateful for you, God. Oh, we love you, Jesus. We love and honor you, God. We love and honor you, God. And we pray, God, that as you're here this morning, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts and our minds so that we would just be more like you and be able to humble ourselves before you, God, to be transformed more and more into the image day by day. yourself to us as we hear. Make yourself known to us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Samuel chapter twelve. Second Samuel chapter twelve um, is the aftermath of a story of David's failure that were, um, I think, reveals um, some of his greatness. Second Samuel chapter twelve. We'll start from the very, um, the very beginning here. And Nathan rebukes David um, in this uh, in this chapter. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came and said to him, "There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor." And the rich man had very many flocks and, sh- and herds, but the poor man had nothing but a, few, uh, but a little ewe lamb, uh, which he had bought. When he brought it up, it grew up with him, and with his children, he used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, so it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man who was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to care for the guests who had come to him. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lived, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the land fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And David, of course, was rightfully angered, right, by the parable that Nathan is telling. He doesn't know what's about to come next. You do, because you've read the story. He doesn't know what, what's about to come next. But, but David, as king, is very interesting. He has this sense of justice. He's blind to the gravity of his own sin, but he still has a sense of justice, right? And he issues the correct, um, the correct judgment. Um, that anything that was stolen will be returned fourfold. And this comes out of Moses' law. He's not inventing this. Um, it's, it's just proof that, that even in his low state here, he has a very, um, very, very, very good eye for, for this. Um, verse 7, And Nathan said to David, You are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I have anointed you king over Israel. I have delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Uh, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and you shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, 
Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Um, all right. So uh, this is the first part of the story. We're about to read the second part. The second part actually is the uh, is the fun and interesting part. Um, sorry, not fun. Fun is like, uh, it's not fun. Um, but uh, but there's something about the story that actually reveals um, uh, an extraordinary trait of David's, which is what that David, in his failure, um, manages to recover very well, of course, and uh, and 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 walks out the rest of his life like. Um, correctly with the Lord. So David fails grievously, right? And most people think about like David's sin. They think of this this episode with Bathsheba and the, the outcome of the episode. Yeah? And David recognizes what the judgment of the Lord is going to be. Um, Nathan says to him, prophesies this, like, this time your son will die. The, the, the baby that Bathsheba is about to give birth to will die. And uh, so that's the first. And David will lose actually four more children after this one. Um, it, and it's it's tragic. Uh, it, it begins with the next chapter. His son Amnon rapes his daughter Tamar, and um, and then so Absa- they're they're half siblings. Um, and then so Absalom, his other son, kills Amnon. So Tamar's out, um, Amnon's out, and then Absalom rebels against David and seizes the throne. Um, and and David's army kills Absalom. Um, and then uh, and then David, in his old age, fails to um, uh, uh, appoint an heir. Uh, the way that, that he, he fails to manage his possessions very well. And so, um, then so his other son seizes the throne, and then David gives it to Solomon because he's promised to Bathsheba. Um, and, uh, and then Solomon kills that. So, so he ends up losing four children, and justice is done. And, and David's sin is, um, is, is dealt with grievously by the Lord. You should not assume um, that just because God loves you that God will overlook um, <laughs> That God will overlook the things that we've done. It, it, that's not the way that it works. All right. So, so that part is true. God is just, and David knows it. By the way, David has not lost sight of this. But here's here's the really interesting part, right? Okay. So the judgment is pronounced. Yeah. And then verse 15. I love this verse. Dave, then Nathan went up to his house. I, I know that like that's not necessarily the verse in this story that Samuel doesn't know people, but I kind of love this bit because that's like saying, and Nathan dropped the mic. Uh, it, do you know? Because Nathan is the court prophet. Like, it's Nathan's job to stand before the king and prophesy. But in, in this instance, like, Nathan, um, I, I don't know, like, you, you could just imagine right, the way he feels. Like, he's just, he's, he's frustrated with David. Like, he's, 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 he's upset with him. He's, 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 you know, right? He said the word of the Lord. He's pronounced his righteous judgment. I'm going to just walk that on David. You know, if this is your mess, you deal with it. It's the word of the Lord. And I love this. And you're not thinking of, you know, the man of God is. But this is, I just love this. And so Nathan went up to his house. All right, now David's all alone. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay in the night, uh, uh, all night on the ground. And the elders of the house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not. Nor would he eat food with him. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. So they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him and did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. So when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. And then the servants said to him, What is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was still alive. And when the child died, you rose and ate food. Then he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Um, this story is, is I, okay, I know it doesn't seem like it, but, but, but this story is, in my opinion, one of David's great triumphs. And to me, it, 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 um, it is proof of his greatness um, it, it's one of those stories that proves the greatness, kind of like, you know, when he took on Goliath. Like, like it's one of those stories that's like, okay, this man is a great man. And the reason uh, that this story is, um, uh, 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 um, speaks to me that way, we're, we're going to go through it in a moment here. Okay, there are certain things that David was really good at, and there were certain things that he was really bad at. Example, uh, David um, was a very bad father. Uh, as, as I just said, he, he lost four of his children, um, and and actually uh, uh, inc- uh, 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 five, if you include um, the child that died there. And 
in every single instance, uh, um, his children suffered or were killed or died because of something that David should have, could have, and should have prevented as father and as king. He, he, it was within his power to save each and every single one of his children, even though the, the judgment of the Lord, I mean, you know, it was just that that happened to him. Nevertheless, if he'd been a better father, he would have saved all of his children. Like, like if you go through every single story, the, the fault is ascribed to David in every single case. Yes, his children were sinners. Yes, of course that. But, but as father and as king, he, he, was, he would have been able to, 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 to save all of them. Uh, uh, they all died because of his foolishness, um, actually, because of his tolerance for their sin, because of his blindness towards their issue, because of his unwillingness to discipline them, to rebuke them, to deal with them, while the issue could still be dealt with. And, um, and so he was honestly, honestly, not a very good father. Actually, that's putting it mildly. He, he was terrible. It was terrible. I, I, I know that you may think that you, 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 your parents are not okay. you, you, Your parents are fantastic. Um, uh, that was good. He, he's absolutely good. But the, the, the one thing that David does really well, like, like historically well, like, like God decided that he was going to name his own son after David, <laughs> you know, to allow his own son to be called David's son, like, well, I mean, that's, that's really well. You know, that's more than, like, winning your local baking contest well. Like, that, that's, like, that, that, that's, that's really good. The one thing that he did really, really well was that he knew how to relate to God. And he related to God rightly. And this story demonstrates that just as well as probably any other story out there about him. David's mastery is that he understood how to relate to God in just about every season of his life. He starts by being uh, firm in, in his belief in, in, in justice and his role as king and his belief in justice. He is quick to repent of his own sin, to see the error of his ways. He's blind, yes, but now he sees. You know, like, and very quickly, like the word of the prophet comes, he doesn't argue, he doesn't accuse, he doesn't like, you know, throw Nathan in jail, which is what, as you remember, other kings did when they got words that they didn't like. Um, uh, he, he didn't do any of that. You know, Nathan says, you are that man. And, and David immediately is like, he's struck, like he realizes that he is. And, 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 and he gets to that place where he recognizes his wrongdoing. And that is just marvelous. Okay, th- that's the first part of the story, right? And then you get into the second part of the story. Right. So the child is sick, and God struck, strikes the child, and the child is going to die. And how does David know that? Because Nathan already told him. So knowing that God has ordained, foreordained, ordained a certain outcome, knowing that God has determined that the child will die, David then goes, and for seven days, day and night, he's praying and he's fasting for the child. Um, why would you, knowing the will of God, pray and fast contrary to what God has already told you he's going to do. Like, why would you feel, why is that, does that make any sense? Like, why is it okay? Knowing what God is going to do, that you go and pray and fast for seven days, contrary to the outcome that God has already told you he's going to do. Which is just, and he understands, and he understands why, and he understands he can't fix it. Like, what? why then does he go and pray and fast? Anyway. Because David understands how God wants us to relate to him more than you or I understand. Well, that, that's the answer. But, but um, God is very interesting. And um, he's very interesting. And uh, you, you don't really necessarily understand whether people understand God or don't understand God or know Him or don't know Him based on how many verses they can quote to you. That, that's not the way that you tell. It, you tell based on what happens in different circumstances in life. It, it's very interesting that, um, it's very interesting. Sometimes it's the people you don't expect that really understand God very well based on their choices, based on their actions. Um, really funny. In, so in New York, you can find all sorts of things in New York. And, um, and one thing that you can find 
if you go to a, um, oh, now that it's summer, so you can, you can really find it. Um, one thing you can find if you, if you, um, you're, you're thinking like summer in New York, what can I find? Pigeons, rats, you know, bad smells, like smelly sewers. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people playing chess in the park. You're like, oh, what? Another chess analogy. Yes, actually. <laughs> another Sunday, another chess metaphor. No, I'm just kidding. But this one's actually really easy. So, um, have you ever, have you, you, you've gone to the park and you've, you've seen, you've met a chess hustler, right? Like, they, they're, they're just like, you know, they're, they're the guys that, like, they look like they're homeless and they sit in the park and they play chess, like, all day, you know, every day, as, as often as it's not, like, uh, freezing out. And they're willing, if you pay them a few bucks, especially, like, they're willing to play games. And, and you're like, oh, dude, it's like a 60-year-old homeless guy. Like, I mean, maybe you never play chess. Like, you know, I played in middle school. I can beat him. And you realize you can't. Like, they're actually, like, they're actually, they're actually really good. You know, they're actually they're actually really good. Okay, and so there's this there's this young lady who um, who is um, who makes uh, like like chess vlogs like on uh, on on YouTube and uh, and her mom is actually a grandmaster and uh, and so it was hilarious. She sat down and, and played with like played with one of these hustlers in like Union Square um, uh, a Park or something like that. It was, it was absolutely hilarious because you know the beginning the guy was like you know her mom's a little older and she just looks like a normal suburban you know white. You know, just 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 uh, like you know, a sixty-year-old woman. You know, just, uh, this guy's hilarious. I mean, he thinks that he's gonna whoop her, and you know, he's like, "Oh, don't worry, I'll go easy on you." And and uh, about thirty moves in, he's like, "Oh, you're good." And uh, it, it takes, you know, it really takes about that long. It, he was actually really good. Like he, like it. it um, but uh, in the beginning, she's stumbling out. She's like, "Oh, you move that pawn." You know, what pawn should I move? And she's sitting there and thinking about it. She's like, "I'm not like, It's absolutely hilarious. And um, these guys are actually really good. Did you know? Okay, this is a different lesson for a different day. But, um, but, but, but it was it was just really funny because it, it took like probably like twenty five or thirty moves, and you realize that he was trapped before they like, didn't realize that. And all of a sudden, you realize he was trapped, and you realize that the, this woman was not just like some random, you know, woman that walked off the street. And you have no idea because appearances don't give it off. And it's the same like for things like this. Like the the knowledge of God is not proven by the number of verses you can quote or how long you've gone to church. It's proven by the way that you respond in different circumstances and the choices that you make. And and very often people that know God like in relationally are able to do things that they you cannot necessarily like take a verse and point to it and be like, Oh yeah, that's why they did that or that's why this is the right thing to do. Except that God is pleased with the way that he relates to them. Um, which makes some teaching around this like very difficult because if I can't pin down exactly what you're supposed to do, how am I, how, how are we supposed to discuss like what the right thing to do here is, right? Alright. Jesus in the garden says he, he, he's sorrowful, right? Unto death, like all the, the, the gospels tell us, and he, and he says, you know, if there's any way, Father, for this cup to pass before me, like, please do that. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Okay. But, but it's, I, I remember when I was younger and I read the first part of that passage, you know, where he says, if there's any way for me to pass, and I was a little bit, I used to be pretty confused about this. And the reason I was confused about this is, like, Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus has been praying for it his entire Like, he was born knowing. Well, well, well Cass, that's controversial. Some people do not believe that he knew when he was born. He sort of grew into it. Although, uh, that's, a, that's a very... It, um, Christology is this different, different, different Christology. Some people don't think that Jesus knew from the very beginning um, that you know, he was born uh, into a human body with, with all the, the, the blindness and the, and the naivete and the ignorance of a, of a human baby. And he didn't have to learn to speak and he had to learn to walk. Um... And he, evidently, he didn't know that he was the savior of the world, you know, and, and it was all very confusing. And, but I don't know, like, how old was he, you know, when, when one day he realized, oh, God is actually my father, Joseph is not. I mean, was that like a shocking moment, just kind of like when your parents tell you, you were adopted? I mean, was that like, is that, I mean, did he have that moment? Was he shocked? I mean, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I'm not sure. And I mean, what, what about the moment where he realized that, like, he was going to die for the sins of the world? I mean, was that was like, was it, he was like, you know, this is not fair. I didn't sign up for this. Um, it's just, it's very confusing. Okay, and so I don't think that happened. I think that he knew from the very beginning, right? But if he knew from the very beginning, like, why in that, that in, why in the garden in that moment it, does he say, if there's any way, let this cup pass through before me? Like, is that an expression of weakness? Is that a, an expression of, like, it can't be, obviously, because he's perfect. But, but why is it that that is the right thing to do in that moment? And how do you think the Father responds? Do you think the Father is frustrated? Because sometimes you may, you, in your humanity, may think, well, I can't say that to God because God would be frustrated. I mean, well, how would the Father respond? Would the Father not look at Jesus and be like, what are you talking about? 
this, remember? <laughs> I mean, maybe I, I, like, I mean, how do you think God the Father responds? And Jesus, you know, if there's any way possible, let, let this come past for me. I'm like, do you think the Father, no, seriously, do you think the Father's impatient? He's like, what are you doing? Like, I mean, you know, like, we've been preparing for this for millions of years. Like, I mean, we, like, I, I, how do you think he responds? And why does Jesus feel free to do that? See, God is a relational God. And, and the way that he relates to us and the way that he desires to be related to by us is very different from the set of rules that we would, you know, compose in terms of the way that we would relate to God. And the way that God deals with our emotions and what he believes to be ideal, acceptable, perfect in the midst of those emotions is, is interesting. It's not necessarily what you would think. God has not created us to be logs, actually. It's one of the great um, tensions in, in the Bible, which is that we know that God experiences emotions that are very similar to human emotions. At least the Bible describes them in, in terms of human emotions. God is wrathful. God is angry. God is patient. God is kind. God shows compassion. God shows great. Like, like, like you know, God, God has emotions. Like, he's sad about things. He's upset about things. Like a human would. But then the Bible also says that God is unchanging. So how can God, because you know that the, the mere, like, having an emotion requires you to change. This is the whole point of having an emotion. You are not unchanging if you are sad or angry or upset or, or, or like, does it make any sense? And so then, then, then the Bible says that he's unchanging. And I don't know what that means. And so systematic theology is broken. I kid, but I don't kid. Uh, about, about a decade ago, two of my favorite Christian thinkers, William Lane Craig and Wayne Grudem, had a, a, a disagreement about this, um, about the nature of, of God's timelessness and unchangingness, because it, it's, it's a tension that I, we don't know how to cross. I, I don't know how to cross. But God has emotions, and, and, and he expects you to have emotions, and emotions in of themselves require that you change and that you follow your circumstances. And being true to your emotions, rather than, um, rather than denying your emotions, is a desirable trait of the way that you relate to God. God expects you to, and I think wants you to be true to the emotions that you have, which includes, in the case of David, it would be, okay, back up. Is it, a, is it a better thing for David to do, knowing that his child is going to die, to nevertheless go and seek God for mercy? Or is it a better thing to do for David to look at this and say, well, the will, the, thy, thy will be done. You know, and just be like, oh, the child's going to die. Let me just go about life. I mean, like, what, what the, do you understand? Like, there's a difference between the appearance of godliness and what God actually desires of us to do and to be like. And here's the problem. The problem is that in our own minds, because we don't understand this aspect of God very well, there's often, we can't bridge this gap between wanting to appear godly to others and to ourselves and actually being godly by being a human as he's created us to be. And so you neither feel free to be your human, your humanness, nor do you free to, 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 to be righteous. Like, you know, this is like, choose one, you know, like, but, but we don't because there's, there's a tension in us. But where Dave, what David understood very well, and what Jesus obviously did correctly, is that they understood that God does not hate you for the things that you feel. And even when the things that you feel and the things that you desire are at tension with his express will and what you know to be right, it is still the wisdom of the Lord and still righteousness for God for you to express those things and to be true to those things. Because that's what that's the way that God has created you. And he doesn't hate you for that. He actually wants to relate. That's the right way for you to relate to him. Because if you do not do this, your religion is very, it's, it's very plastic, cardboard, whatever metaphor you want to use. It's a very, it's not, it's, it's, it, you're failing to embrace that, that thing in you, right? But in doing this, you do not deny the righteousness of God. You affirm the righteousness of God. But you affirm, like, also that what is right for you to do may at times appear like that you are at odds with, with God's righteousness. You're not. It, it, it's just, it's a bizarre tension that, that, that actually demonstrates a certain amount of maturity in, in the way that we relate to him. In the way that we relate to him. Very often the right thing to do, like, before God appears wrong before others, or is something that is very difficult for you to explain to others. And his servants, in this case, believe David to be completely, like, what, like, what is he doing? Like, completely, to be completely weird. And, and if you were David's friend, or, or, or uh, you may also, you may, like, 
you may sympathize, right? Like this guy's like hot. Like if if God has said that you're if God has said that your your baby's gonna die, like why are you in there like crying and talking like that? I mean, your baby's gonna die. <laughs> and, and it's exactly that type of religion that that is is very little use for anyone. It's just very useless. It, but it sounds so wise. It's, it's, it's very useless, actually. What, what God desires, uh, what David responds, I, in my opinion, I mean, essentially perfectly, is he responds exactly right. He expresses, and, and, um, and the way that he explains it is awesome, right? And so he, he fasts and he prays uh, seven days, and the child dies. God doesn't listen, and he doesn't hate God for not listening to him. And he's not offended at God for not listening to him. But, but nevertheless, like, for seven days, he's faithful, you know, to that prayer and to that fasting. God. And at the end of the seven days, um, he, he rises, he washes himself, he anoints himself, he changes his clothes, he goes into the house of God, he worships, he has no accusation against God, he's humble himself against God. God did not give him what he wants, but he doesn't have anything against God. He's just like, do you, do you see? Like, it's just like... I mean, this is like the hand of a master. This is like when you watch Top Chef and the guy cuts onions, like, oh, you know how to cook. You know, I mean, everybody can say, everybody can say, but like, but you know how to cook. Like, it's like, wow. There are certain times and certain things that you can, you could just, you can, you can tell. Um, I, I was really grieved recently because I was thinking about, um, there's this epidemic of cancer in the church. I don't know if you know this. Like, like, there are so many Christian leaders that are, like, have cancer and are dying of cancer. It, it's unbelievable. Um, a Bible scholar that, that, um, that I think did some really good work, um, an Old Testament scholar, his name is Michael Heiser, he, he studies some of the, the, the spiritual um, dynamics of, of uh, uh, like, what the Bible said that in a way that really helped me. And um, he died earlier this year. Um, he was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. He died earlier this year. Um, Lauren Cunningham, founder of YWAM, was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer earlier this year. Um, and he's not getting any treatment. Um, they're just uh, essentially at this point waiting for him to die. Um, his, 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 his wife um, said something to me that was really, um, really amazing, actually. I mean, it's just, it's just really amazing because th- these are not the sort of things that normal people say, you know, unless they just know God very well. Um, but she said, you know, we pretend we're not getting any treatment. There's no treatment that we have. And uh, he said, we're not pretending that we're not going to get any treatment. He says, you know, Lauren is fine. He's got lots of energy. And, and, and she says, you know, don't, don't feel sorry for me. Is Jesus, family, friends, and vision. What more can a man ask for? And I mean, it was just like, it was, it was fantastic. And, you know, he just wants to live out his last days well, and he's going to go and be with Jesus. Um, as you know, Tim Keller just died of um, also stage four cancer just like three years ago. I mean, there's just Bill Johnson's wife died of cancer. Uh, I, I mean, it, this just, it's endless. Like, it, it's, and there's so many more that, that it's, there's this epidemic of, of like, it's, it's unbelievable. And, um, and, and but one thing that is that is actually like really really incredible though, is that when these men or, or women experiences these are testing, and you actually get to see it's in these moments, like we, you know when the doctor says you have three weeks to live, it, it, it's in these moments that like what is really in you begins to come out. And and now you have nothing to lose, right? Because you're about to die. Like well, we just care about your reputation. You have nothing to lose, right? You should just be yourself. And so some people uh, are frantic. Some people begin to try to raise money for more chemo. Some people, like, like you know, get, try to get thousands of people to pray for them. And some people just totally at peace. And, and these things are not things that you can necessarily tell, but, but um, they add up in your, in your life. Like, these things add up over long, over long periods of time. There are very often, like, Doing what is right in God's eyes is different from doing what is right in people's eyes. And when you do what is right in God's eyes, it may seem weird, it may seem uh, different, it may, you, you may be, it, people may think you're, you're, you're delusional, you're irrational, like, you know, not irrational necessarily, but irrational. <laughs> you, you know, like, like it, and, and, uh, and it's just odd. And yet, and yet, you find yourself in a place where you are thinking and feeling and believing and doing exactly what it is that God desires for you to do. You're relating to God in exactly the right way that God desires for you to relate to Him. It's just that you can't put your finger on a reason or a why for how you do that. I like it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse uh, something or other, 16 I think. Let me find it. Nope, there's no 
there is no verse 16 in Hebrews chapter 4. What verse is this in Hebrews chapter 4? <laughs> that happens. Oh, no, there's verse 16. Yes, never mind. I thought I was chapter 5. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. It's very easy to preach about the greatness of God's mercy. It's actually much more difficult to speak it when you need it. And the, the, here's, here's why. Um, because if you have any um, sense of righteousness at all, you understand God's justice. And when you understand God's justice, and you understand the severity of God's justice, it's actually quite difficult to speak God's mercy. Because you know that God is just. And, and any time that you actually need mercy, you're wrong. You know? And you absolutely deserve what justice would bring. Except, in that instance, you begin to think, there's a lot of people that preach, will preach, you know, that mercy triumphs over judgment, right? It's, um, it, it's easy to say it, but then actually doing it and walking it out before God and believing in Him and, and being willing to stay true to that belief is, is, is quite difficult. Like, it's, it's, it's quite difficult because what happens is that we say things like mercy triumphs over judgment, right? And then we preach it and we pray it and then, and then God doesn't do it. He shows us His justice rather than His mercy. And then what do we do? We give up on His mercy. And, and, and so, a lot of Christian leaders will start by asking God for mercy over America, over their city, over their state, over their camp, over wherever. But, but then, like, as you move through life and you realize that you're praying for His mercy, you're not getting His mercy, you're getting His justice, because all the wrong is, like, you know, for instance, like, evil leaders are elected, right? And the Bible actually affirms the idea that you get the leaders that you deserve. Like, if the people are wicked, then, you know, then God will raise up evil leaders for them. Like, that, that idea is very well from the Bible. And so what happens, though, is that you pray for a leader that you believe to be godly, the leader that you believe to be godly, and you pray and you talk and you millions of other people pray, and that person doesn't get elected. And, and, then, and then how do you explain the fact? You explain the fact that I say, well, the people are wicked, and the Bible says that, you know, if you're wicked, then God will give you wicked leaders, and you got exactly what you deserve. And then you're averting to God's justice, and it's like you're not wrong in that. That is a biblical principle, except that, do, do you understand? Like, 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 you were supposed to be committed to mercy, you didn't see it, and so now you're averting to that. The, unfortunately, you see, that's not what David did. And that's what I'm, tr- I'm trying to, like, there's, there's something about him that is magical that I'm trying to isolate. It's very difficult to explain it. But, like, knowing what is, what is quote-unquote right and just, he's able to go the other way in a way that is not defiant, in a way that is humble, but in a way that where he holds on to what he knows to be true against the facts of what is happening. And he doesn't deny God in the facts. He just is able to hold on to a faith in God's grace and in God's mercy that surpasses his experience of God's justice. And so what Hebrews is saying here is really extraordinary, right? It's like, I, I, like it, 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 let us in with confidence, not with like timidity, not with fearfulness, not with like trepidation, not with like, you know, double-mindedness, but with confidence, boldly, King James says. Let us, like without hesitation, know that you are right in doing it. Approach the throne of God. Draw near to Him. Draw near to the throne of grace, Right? that you may receive mercy and find grace in the time of help. The person that receives mercy is the person that presses into mercy knowing that God is just. That's mercy. And that's the beauty of mercy, is that like knowing that you don't deserve it, knowing that it's right for Him to not give it to you, knowing that you don't always get it, knowing like all these things nevertheless without questioning is good, without questioning. Like, you understand, like, knowing all of those things, you still have a resolve that is placed in the confidence of faith, and you press into him anyway for that. Wow! If we can do this in every area of our life, you'd be a lot more successful and a lot more breakthrough than, than, than you are. Because what happens is we pray, we don't get the things that we pray for, and then we develop doctrine to explain why, we didn't get the thing that we prayed for. And, and you're right in your explanation. The explanation sounds good. It sounds just. All your friends are like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
you write blog posts about it, then other people believe it. But, but, but that's not the way God wants to be related to. God wants to be related to differently. He wants you to relate to Him as a mercy giver. He wants you to continue to approach the throne of grace and mercy, even though you don't always get the outcome of what it is that you ask for from Him. And, and the person that's willing to do this is the person that knows God. Because you don't do this if you're trying to justify yourself. You, you don't go back to God when you don't get your prayers over and over. Like, you, you understand? It, it's the person, like, you would give up. If, if all you wanted was a good explanation and some good theology, you, you give up, like, the first, the second, the third, or fourth time you don't get what you want from God. But the person that keeps going after is the person that, like, that relates to God in a way that God wants to be related to. God wants to be related to that way. And that's pretty pretty incredible. The, the outcome, the fruit of relating to God in this way is that um, you begin to believe things and, and live out a, a life that, um, that, that is actually very pleasing to Him. There's a story uh, in Mark, um, uh, um, what chapter is it in? Uh, it is in Mark, but it's Luke, okay, Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the disciples, and, um, and they go out, and they, they cast out demons, actually. And it's, it's a great victory, but there's a rebuke that he has for them on the way back. Okay, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Then the 72 returned with joy. Remember when Jesus sent out 72? And, and he sent them out to, to, to preach and to, to cast out demons and heal the sick and all that stuff? All right. So in verse 17, it says, The 72 returned to him with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Um... And his response is very interesting. Um, I would think that his response is like, yeah, you go, guys. But that's not his response. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to trample on servants and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Um, back up. First of all, the fact that your name is written in heaven needs to mean more to you than the fact that the spirits are, you know, that you have victory over all the power of the enemy. That's true. Let's come back to that at the end. But that's not what Jesus says. The verse does not say, rejoice more that your names are written in heaven than that. Right? That's not what it says. Jesus says, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Well, that's confusing. Because if they're the enemy, and if we have victory over them, shouldn't that make us happy? And he says, do not rejoice. Like, it's true. It's a fact. It happens. But don't be giddy about it. Don't let the sun see your smile. It's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, the Bible says that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's no pleasure in it. But we do. Like, we like it when somebody wrongs us and then they are destroyed. Like, that's nice, you know. If somebody is, like, mean to you and they, they get cancer, I mean, as a Christian, you know that you're not supposed to be happy. Or, or if they die. Or if they retire because of old age and you've, like, outlasted them. Like, you know that you're not supposed to be happy, but... Sometimes it's like, oh, thank you, Jesus. And, and in doing that, it reveals something about your heart that is not in God's heart. Right? Even demons. Even demons. Over, even the enemy. Even, even false gods. Even, even, you know, even these things. It, he does not want you to, uh, to have any joy in the fact that you have victory over them. It's true that you do. It's true that he's given it to you. It's true that he paid the price for it. And yet, he doesn't want you to be formed by this because it will create something in your heart that doesn't want to be like this. In the same way, 
it, it, it's, 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 you see, it's the same idea. It's just a different manifestation of it. it it's, it's just saying that he wants you to deeply and fully knowledgeable and convinced of his justice. Nevertheless, he wants you to choose to dwell on the riches of his mercy, even when you don't get it. He wants you to learn how to place your heart and how to guard your emotions and how to place your heart in the things that will give you long and lasting life out of them, rather than just in the in the in the emotions that arise naturally in in the course of human life. And this is a choice that we make. You see, it, it's a choice that we make whether to rejoice in His justice or in His mercy. It's a choice that we make whether to, to believe this or to believe that. And it's it's part of the free will that He's giving you. Part of the free will is in any set of circumstances, you can choose to feel and to believe a lot of different things. You can, you can choose, do you know? If, if God sends you somewhere and you don't experience great success immediately, you can choose to believe, I missed it, God is not with me. Like, you can choose to believe all sorts of different things. And, and as part of your free will, He doesn't impose a certain sort of conclusions on you. He, he steps out and He allows you to believe what you want. You know, like any of our favorite missionaries, you know, get sent to the slum. Ten years, nothing happens. You know, every day they're out, you know, carrying babies or you know, feeding the poor or you know, trying to start a Bible study. And you know, five years goes by, ten years goes by, nothing happens. Okay, now it's interpretation. Did God not send me? Does God hate me? Am I in sin? Are these people in sin? Like, I mean, it, it just there, there's a there's a panoply of, of possible like options. And and as part of your free will, you get to just choose what you want to believe. And he, as God, does not step in with an angel and be like, Ta-da! This is the will of the Lord! Keep going! 32 days from now, you'll have breakthrough. Like, he doesn't do that. He allows you the freedom, uh, a vacuum, so to speak, to believe whatever you want, to interpret whatever you want. And it's, it's like this in these different things in life. Like, David has the option. He can choose to believe, God, I just a child's going to die. Move on to life. Or he can choose it like, it's a choice. It's a total choice. But the choice that you make reveals the nature of your relationship with God. And it's the same with everybody else too, you know. Like, there are plenty of times in life where you can choose to believe that person says, I don't like, maybe they hate me. They don't, actually. I mean, maybe they're ignorant, maybe they're mean. You get to choose what to believe. And the only way to have functioning relationships with humans, as well as God, but especially with God, because that's what we care about most, especially with God, is to actually choose to believe what is, um, I want to say what is right, but, but not in the, the moral sense, not in the like, moral right or wrong, what is right in the sense of like, like there's a right set of things that you can believe that will draw you closer to God, and there's a wrong set of things that you can believe that will make you, that is easy to explain um, that is grounded in biblical truth, you know, that, that where you have verses like back you up, and yet, and yet, it doesn't bring you into a relationship with God. It just, it just makes you religious. Yeah, and and it, but these things are so fulfilling, and they seem so um, right in front of others. I would give you examples. I don't want to like you know, I, I just they, they seem so right in front of others that that this other set of options where you seem like an, an idiot and a lunatic and and. And, and ignorant and irrational, but it, it, it's actually what God wants you to be. It, it's actually like it proof that you know Him in a way that other people don't. Is that you're willing to go and believe those things? You know, it, it's it, it's it's incredible. So here in in Luke chapter ten, right? Jesus saying like, you know, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. How is that possible? Like, I, I, how do you get victory over something and then like don't like have joy in that. But he says, but there's something that I want you to place your joy in. Rejoice what? That your names are written in heaven. The source of your joy and the source of just about everything else will determine in the long run whether it lasts or not, whether it gives you fulfillment or not, whether it bears the fruit that it's supposed to bear or not. Assume that you have a relationship with a person. It could be your spouse, it could be your friend, whatever it is. There's a foundation for that relationship, and there's a reason why you feel accepted, there's a reason why you feel right. There's, there's, there's reasons for that. And uh, the, like, what, what the foundations for your relationship are will determine whether that relationship succeeds in the long run or not. We warn people all the time, you do too, because anybody that's been through it, you know. 
if you go into a romantic relationship up to your emotions, it, you, it, you eventually need to grow something other than emotions. Because why? Your emotions don't matter. And eventually you love out of choice, not out of emotion. Does that make any sense? And so what happens, though, if you um, have a romantic relationship without emotions at all, like where you just start without emotions? Nobody's ever had to suffer that in this room, perhaps. But there's, like, I mean, uh, probably most marriages in history were, you know, not modern, you know, Romeo and Juliet kind of relationships. So most, most marriages in history are, are, are not that. They're, you know, where your family finds someone for you, and you may or may not have met them, you know, before you get married. Like, that's, that's the norm. The, the Romeo and Juliet stuff, that's, that's less normal. The, the norm is actually different than what we believe. The foundation of marriage is, like, depicted in every movie, in every story, in, every, in so many adult novels that should not ever be written, ugh. You know, it's, it's nothing to do with, it, it, it's, you know, the, the uh, foundation for modern romantic relationships is not at all the sort of commitment or covenant that God uh, wants to be at the center of it. it it's, it's just either sex or feelings. Like, it's not, it's not things that are actually the foundation of it. And the problem is that if you're, if you're grounded in something that is not the right foundation, then this relationship will not bear fruit in the long run. Is that make any sense. Eventually, it just it won't turn out the way that it's supposed to. It's the same with God. And it's why, if your relationship with God is grounded in the fact that, think about it, if your relationship with God is grounded in the fact that He gives you victories, that He gives you authority, that He gives you power, that you are, that you are a winner, like Donald Trump is a winner, not a loser. Other people are losers, but he's a winner. If your relationship with God, if you're the way that you think about the world, the way that you think about Christianity is that we are winners. Because Jesus is a winner, I am a winner then actually in the long run, it does not bear fruit in God. Because what will happen is you'll carry that out to other areas of your life. Which is to say that, like, you need to win at your job if you, you know, to drive any joy there. That you need to make more money than other people to drive any joy, like, in life. That you need to be more successful. You need to have more knowledge. You need to... And the thing is that God doesn't, like, that is just leads you to a life of emptiness. And it starts, actually, with a very interesting place. It starts with you being able to cast out demons. You wouldn't think that being happy that you can cast out demons leads you to a life where you're searching for meaning and fruitfulness. And yet it does. Just like you wouldn't think that a life grounded in justice will make you a Pharisee or a hypocrite. And yet it will. And the only way to not do that is to understand the way that God wants you to relate to Him and then be faithful to that. In honor of Tim Keller, it's about 10 years ago, he preached a sermon describing his first experience with, uh, he had stage four cancer, uh, uh, maybe it wasn't stage four, but like a long time ago, and they had to do a surgery to get rid of the cancer, and he talked about like facing the fact that he was going to die, he talked about trying to have courage in the face of that, and, and he talked about there's two different ways to have courage. Um, there's one courage, which is defiance, which is to say that, like, you know, you're a snake and I defy you, you know, give my sword, and, you know, I'm, 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 I'm going to take the fear that I have and just squash it, squash it, squash it, squash it, like, and defy you. And there's a different type of courage that has nothing to do with trying to defy fear. There's a different type of courage that looks at something that you have hope in and that pays such attention to that thing that you have hope in that it gives you courage. And and he teaches this out of, out of Lord of the Rings, which is... Best way to teach these things if one had to teach those things. Best way. That is excellent. And that's, that's true. You know, the, the courage that is just defying your enemies does not make you more godly. But the appearance, the appearance of it is the same as the good courage, which is the, the courage that gives you hope in something else. It appears the same, it just appears that you're not afraid everybody else. But at the foundation of it, the foundation is different. And because the foundation is different in the long run, it will create different fruit. And what God wants in you is He wants to create godliness in you that is real in such a way that just doesn't just appear right, but it creates the right fruit in the long run. Does that make any sense? So that's what Jesus is going after here, and it's really important. See, he wants your uh, joy in life to be based on the fact that you're going to heaven. He doesn't want to be based on any victory 
that you will experience or not experience in this life. He wants you based on the fact that you are going to have it. And if I could be honest, I, I don't know how happy we are that we are going to have it. I, I feel like every time uh, we talk about the fact that we're all going to heaven, there's like it, 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 there's a, a lag in the response um, where people have to remember, oh yes, that's right, uh, we're supposed to be happy about this. And um, how loud do I need to clap so that people know that I'm happy? It, 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 it's just... It doesn't feel genuine when it takes about you know six or seven seconds for you know for people to really respond. It, it, it feels like that sort of forced response that religion provokes in us. But but you have to really ask yourself. I'm serious now. Like, I mean, are you are you really happy that there's a life after this? Are you really conscious of that? Are you conscious? Of, are you so conscious of it that you become unconscious of your failures in life in this life? And in fact. So conscious that you're unconscious of your successes in this life? Are you so conscious that you're going to heaven that, that you're not particularly conscious of whether you got a raise this year or how nice your house is or all the cockroaches that are, you know, crawling around? Are, are, are you conscious enough of it that, like, you know, when you cast out a demon, you forget to tell the story because it's not actually that important to you? And, and the whether you're able to do that or not, that, see, that's what defines whether or not you really relate to God the way that He wants you to relate to Him. That verse where Jesus is, you get away from me, I never knew you. It's one of the scariest things. In the like, it, 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 to this day, it scares me. Like, week by week. Like, no joke. I mean, probably not every single week, but, but like, now, here and now, like, I, I, I am still meditating on how to avoid the fate of standing in front of God and, like, avoiding Him saying, get away from me, I never knew you. Like, it, 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 it's, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if this will ever leave me. I, I, I feel like it's, I, I wonder if it's something that he actually meant for us to have some fear around our relationship with him. I wonder if the person that, that is like, I am a son of God, uh, I wonder if that person actually doesn't have a relationship. But I wonder if it's the person that comes to God with fear and trembling, wondering if he's going to be accepted, wondering if God loves him. Well, like, not, not like in a, like, a mental way, but in an experiential way, like wondering if he's going to step into the presence, wondering if God will embrace him. I wonder if that person is, is actually the person that God wants to see. You see, that's not necessarily what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that Confident, like you know, feel like you could, like you're, you're the king of the world. You're a son of God. And yet, I don't know that that's actually what God wants of us. I feel like what God wants of us is is, is an is an honor slash fear slash like consciousness of the fact that He is really, really big. We are very, very small. We are accepted. We choose to believe that we are accepted. But at the same time, there's that knowledge of the gap. You know, knowledge of just the difference between us. Like, and and how to through that well, how to like, carry that in your mind so that you are um, not fearful is kind of the wrong word. Well, maybe fearful in a godly way of, of rejection, but then also hopeful of acceptance, you know, all at the same time, all at the same time. And I, I want to encourage you in this. I want to encourage you to, to, to measure the emotions and the feelings that you have uh, to be cognizant of the way that you respond to things in life, things that go wrong, things that go bad, and 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 Try to tune it in such a way that it reflects the relationship that you have with him, which is really the thing that's, that's, that is most important. David was consciousness of God's mercy his entire life, uh, close to the end of his life. Do you know he takes a census? Um, the Bible says this, um, the devil actually provoked him to do it, but he takes a census, and then God decides to judge Israel in and um, then he offers David a set of choices, and David says, well, you know, I'm going to choose the one where the angel of the Lord, you know, brings a pest upon Israel, because, you know, how do I know, but God won't, won't have mercy. And in that instance, because I'm not going to read this here, God does, in fact, have mercy. He does exactly that. He, he, he does not destroy Israel. Like, but, but the angel pauses over the threshing floor, do you remember? And then David offers an offering there. And you would think, perhaps, that David, in this story, not having gotten the mercy from God, would later in his life, would just be like, God's not merciful. Screw it. Like, you know, let, let's just go and defeat our enemies. Like, oh, let, let, let's go face a human enemy. I don't want to face God. God is just, but he's not merciful. He doesn't do that. He, he, that's not what he does. He continues to place his faith in God's mercy, even though he didn't get what it is he asked God for. And this is, you see, there's, like, sometimes you go to a museum or, or, or like, an artist studio that says, you know, quiet, please, artist at work. Quiet, please, master at work. 
this is like when you read stories of this story, you can, what you can observe in David is that he, he was a master at relating to God the way that God wanted to be related to. God does not want to be talked down to, obviously. God does not want you to treat him like a vending machine, obviously. But God also does not want you to treat him like he's a set of rules. God doesn't want you to treat him like he's just the text in this Bible and nothing more. He doesn't want you to treat him like, like, like you think you always know what he's going to do. He doesn't want you to treat him that way. Like, oh, that's the rule. God's going to follow it. The end. He wants you to treat him with a certain a mystery, an, an expectation, a yearning. He wants you to... He wants to surprise you. He wants you to respect the fact that he is full of surprises. Like, you know, that he reacts differently in different circumstances. He makes different choices. He's allowed to. He has the freedom to do it. He's not, a, you know, a little thing in a box. Like, you, you know, he, he, he wants you to be amazed at the greatness of, of, of his freedom, of his ability to choose different things in different ways and to, and to bring about different outcomes in different ways. He wants you to be enamored by the different ways that he can write different stories and to love that. He wants you to not be reactionary to your perceived, you know, disappointments or regrets or, like, what, bitterness or whatever. You know? He wants us to relate to him differently. And choosing to relate to him well in that way is the proof that we do know him. And that he knows us. And at the end of the day, it's that, that knowing of him, not casting out demons or raising the dead or the healing the sick. But it's that the fact that we've walked through a life where, where you treated him like he was as an entity to relate to. And you gave him freedom and allowed him to surprise you and chose to place your faith in him and trust him and, 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 and not accuse him, not hold grudges against him, not like feel like you're walking in eggshells around him because he's God. Like, you know, but, but just, just related to him freely and well. And, and you see, then when you stand before him, it, it just, it's, it's a relationship. It's not a rule. I, I, I hope that you're not one of those people that, that, that thinks that, like, you know, just because you said the sinner's prayer one day, that you're going to come, you know, you're going to stand before heaven and gates and be like, open up! I'm a Christian! Uh, yeah, it, it's not the right attitude. Even though that's what the Bible teaches, it's the core of the wrong attitude. Do you know? You stand there on the basis of your relationship with Him, which is only possible by His blood. We know that. Doctrinally, we know that. But you nevertheless, you stand there on the basis of the relationship that you have with Jesus. Not like, be like, you see this blood? I got it. Like, it's not like, it's not, it's not the way it works. I mean, you, you, but, but you see, there are a lot of people that want to relate to God that way. God, I did this, you do that. God, I did this, you open heaven to me. Stop. One of these days, we're going to get rid of the sirens. Actually, maybe not. I, mean, I feel like that's just a uh, feature of New York City, though. Like, can I stand? Let's pray together. We can finish this. In Lord of the Rings, which... Who doesn't love this? Thank you, Jesus, for Lord of the Rings. In Lord of the Rings, Galadriel gives Frodo this light when he misses Florian. So it's just, I love this, this part of the story because, I mean, the entire story is unbelievable. You're the two little hobbits. You know, that's, that's us, probably. I don't know. I mean, some representation of us, perhaps. You know, uh, going up against this huge evil. You know, having to go into the enemy's land in order to conquer this this, this massive evil, and, and they're not prepared, they're not equipped, they're not the bravest in the land, the noblest in the land, the smartest, I mean, they're just they're totally ill-equipped. And in the end, they actually fail, but by divine providence, they succeed. And, and, and the entire story is, is so just unbelievable, but, but, but Galadriel knows, and she is more wise and more powerful than everything else, but she can't accomplish the quest, because that's not given to her to do it. And she knows that, that they're going into this, this land where there's no light, and she gives Frodo this, this, this star, you know, in a bottle. And she, she gives to him and says, you know, may this light, I, it, oh, it does exactly something like, you know, may this lamp be a light into your path you know, when every other light fails. And there's something that you either have or you don't have. You, you either have a real relationship with God that is the light 
when every other light fails or you don't have it. You, you either have a, a something that is in you, a light that is in you, that is still alive when everything else is a failure, everything else is a misery, everything else is a bog, everything else doesn't work out the way you expected, everything else you're ignorant of, every, everything else is a failure or sickness or death or disease. When, when every other light goes out, there either is a light inside of you that is still shining or there isn't. And I want to make sure that there is. I, I want you to encourage you to be really honest with yourself. And seek God for it. Set your heart upon it. As we, as a church, go through life, I am very grateful for how we've grown so much in our ability to do works of righteousness, to build things out, to carry out programs, and all sorts of things. But I, I think that there's still a weakness in whether people are able to remain stable and firm when things don't go well, when things deviate from plan, when problems arise that are unexpected, when life takes its turn, when God doesn't always do exactly what you expect Him to do. And, and the question, I think, is whether you have that spark in you, that light in you, of your intimacy with God sustaining you in that time. Because that is the thing that God wants you to place your hope in. That is the thing that He wants to bring you joy. That's the thing that will carry you through this life and keep you stable. Alright, let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you, God, for these people, for this church. Thank you, God, for the wonderful things that you're doing here. Thank you, God, for how you've met us and how you're with us, how you're always, always, always with us, how you never fail us. And even today, God, as we are here, I just pray, Lord, that you would put a knowledge, a conviction upon our hearts, God, of yourself, of who you are, of what you're doing in us and what you desire out of us. And Father, I pray that you would make us faithful to you. Father, if there's anyone in this room, Father, if there's anyone in this room that does not know you in a way that stabilizes them and holds them firm and is a firm foundation for them in moments of great triumph or great difficulty. God, I just I pray that you would bring us to a place of humility and that you would bring us to a place of seeking. God, we know that you are the treasure of all the earth. And if we have everything else but we don't have you, we have nothing. So we want you, God. We want you, God. We want you, God. And we pray this morning, Lord, that you make yourself known to us. Make yourself known. right now.